Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Luke Nelson is a professional runner, physician's assistant, race director of the Scout Mountain Ultras in his town of Pocatello, Idaho, a climate activist, husband, father of three, and somebody who doesn't get a lot of sleep. And in this conversation, my co-host Brendan Leonard and I talked to Luke about how he and Brendan first met, Luke's background as a serious snowboarder, climber, and kayaker, how and why he got into running and did his first marathon, his obsession with testing his limits and how he attempts to balance that obsession with family life, why, given everything else he's got going on, he makes the time to also be a race director and more. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here with Luke Nelson and Brendan Leonard. And my first question is, Luke, when did you and Brendan first meet or how did you meet? I, you know, I was thinking about that when we were scheduling this, and I think... I awkwardly introduced myself to Brendan in a parking lot of Whole Foods in Salt Lake City when I saw his rad minivan that said semi-rad uh, like four or five years ago, maybe even a little longer. Are you sure? Because I feel like we, we met, I was doing an awkward book signing at the Black Diamond <laughs> store and I think you came in. Oh, I was just so, it was at Black Diamond. Yeah. Yes. I was so happy to have somebody to talk to for like a half it, an hour. It was at Black Diamond. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I had probably been at Whole Foods previous to that and then went to Black Diamond yes. to meet you. Yes. Yeah, it was great. Definitely my favorite part of that story is how Luke just conjured up this idea that he met you in a parking lot at Whole Foods. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. The, the, the thing that stuck out to me the most that made me nervous about going in and the place was irrelevant to me was seeing the minivan. Like that set the stage for me. Huh. And, and Luke, at the time, I mean, were you like, I need to meet whoever has this semi-rad sticker or did you all were you already aware of the greatness oh i knew oh, i you knew, knew of the greatness oh yes i've been a, a long time fan okay um, and okay. so i was well aware <laughs> which made the stoke super high um which is maybe why that initial conversation was a little bit awkward because i was just like fanboying super hard that i was meeting the brandon leonard I don't remember it being awkward. I remember the event being awkward because it was like, I thought I was doing an event where it was going to be like a slideshow and, and chat. And it was just like, no, stand in the corner over here with a, <laughs> with a table of books. And then you just kind of stand in there on a Saturday. And, right. Yeah, you were by the gloves. I remember that. Okay. Now, yeah. now that we're talking this through, I remember that you were kind of tucked in the corner by the gloves. Yeah. This is great. I, I also love right now, Luke, if, if you and I, just kept talking and saying effusive things about Brendan, like how many minutes would it take for Brendan to just like melt through his chair in embarrassment? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm tempted to find out. But I'm up for that challenge. Yeah. You know what? At a certain point, it doesn't become worth the money and I would just hang up. Just like, <laughs> yeah, and go clean my garage. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you guys met apparently at a Black Diamond b book signing? That would have been that would have been 2014. Yeah, I was just like yeah. you know, yeah, it was like one of promotional okay. events. And then yeah. uh, and then a bit more of the backstory is Luke and I were talking before we brought you on the call, so I, I I got a little bit of you know intel here, Brendan. But apparently, then you started hitting up Luke for some advice about this whole world of you know long distance running. Is that fair? Boy, I the thing I remember of it is that. I had done the previous year, we had done a backpacking trip across the uh, Sanger de Cristo range. Oh, uh, a, fr yeah. a friend and I had, and I was like, I was trying to convince Luke he should try to do it really fast because it took us 10 days or whatever. Um, 
I still have and, that map on my computer, and that's on my checklist of things to do. Like yeah, that no, map that you shared with me, I've got yeah. It. A friend of mine actually just did a more proper like up on the ridge traverse of the entire thing, and it was only a few days. Like I don't, I don't know how long awesome. it took him, but yeah, Justin Simone, he's a he's a Boulder guy. Oh, okay, yeah, um, I know who Justin is. Yeah. Yep. So he has a much better map for you now, now that you've waited so long. <laughs> <laughs> I've just procrastinated because I yeah. realized it's a plentiful amount of suffering to do that link up. I don't think it's, well, I mean, I don't think it's much bigger than some other, other stuff you've done, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like to talk about your history with running because it kind of one of the questions I, I ask a lot of people is when did you notice or when did you figure out that this was something you were kind of good at or really into. And I think yours is interesting because it is sort of a surprise, not super early in life that you might be really good at trail running. Right. Can you tell a little bit of that story? Sure. I mean, the the interesting thing is I grew up primarily not doing any traditional sports. Um, my dad works for the Boy Scouts. And so every summer we'd spend all summer at the scout camps in various places wherever he was working. Um, and we'd get back right as school started. We'd miss all the early practices for sports. And I was more interested in being outside, like camping and um, backpacking, some rock climbing. And so I missed out on a lot of the kind of team sports stuff and didn't actually do um, any of that really uh, through middle school or high school. I had a really short stint with cross country. I was kind of a science nerd in my senior year the biology teacher convinced me to come out to cross country, mostly to keep me out of trouble. I'd gotten really into skateboarding at the time and being a delinquent. Um, and I liked this guy. I thought he was cool. So I went out and I did a few practices and meets, but I was terrible. And so I went on being just this outdoorsy guy, uh, climbing and doing a lot of skateboarding, snowboarding, kayaking. Um, and about, I guess it's about 12 years ago now, I had some... Um, challenging events about the time our daughter was born uh, around some friends who were killed kayaking and a friend killed skiing and I needed to find a healthier way to be in the mountains and as I was kind of going through this process of trying to find another way to be outside with less risk a friend of mine that worked at the ski shop I was working at, at the time bet me that I couldn't run the local marathon and you know being a <laughs> guy in his mid-20s, I wasn't about to pass up on a bet. And so he signed up. I went for a training run that night. Uh, I ran about three miles and was crippled for a couple of days. My calves were so sore, I can barely walk. And the next Saturday, I ran the marathon um, because he bet me to do it a week before it was happening. Uh, so it was basically off the couch. And uh, I won my age group. Uh, I, won a, I ran a three-hour and seven minute marathon um, <laughs> and and I was like well that's cool like I get like this cool trophy um, I had to go back to work because I couldn't get the whole Saturday off so I went back to work and my coworkers took pity on me let me sit at the register on a stool the rest of the day because I couldn't walk um, and of another coworker there was like hey you did good at that race you should try this trail running race that was a few weeks later um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. And I went out and um, due to the better runner in the field getting lost, I won the race. <laughs> uh, and I was like, this is awesome. I should really do this thing. And um, now that's been 13 years and 10 years of it as a professional runner. That's something else. And uh, a really good anecdote about, you know, the, the value of not getting lost just don't get lost. You might, you might win. <laughs> you might win if you could stay on route. Yeah, totally. Uh, and my, my kind of introduction went really, really quickly. I ran that first marathon in September and one calendar year later, I ran my first hundred mile race. Wow. Um, I, I ran a 50 mile race in the spring, uh, a 50 K that August. And then I ran the bear 100, um, one calendar year later. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> that's what you get when you hang around the wrong friends. Cause I had these <laughs> friends that were like, Oh, you did that. You should try this. And I was like, great, let's try that. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, in our, you know, nascent, uh, running podcast that we've been doing here, I have not heard anything 
that kind of progression in terms of distance. In fact, most of the conversations we've had so far have very much been like, you know, take your time, ease into these different longer distance things. And um, you went exactly opposite of that tactic, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, I, I held up to it. I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that as like the ideal strategy, uh, but it worked. So, yeah, did you find that it was a, still a, like the last 30 miles of that first hundred? Were you kind of like, wow, this is a different, much different thing than I have been doing? Oh, for sure. For sure. I was certain that I was doing permanent damage to my body. Um, but despite the ability to stop at any time, I didn't, I just kept going <laughs> and, uh, and really kind of, I, I think that I've, I've learned this about myself now that I really relish in the mental challenge of pushing beyond your physical capability, um, and seeing kind of what that space is made of. It's pretty interesting. So it's a, it's a bright moment instead of a dark moment for you, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And, and I, enjoy when it gets really hard figuring out how to succeed whatever that definition of succeed is but to to not quit and to try to work around what the problem is luke how how new or novel did that kind of feel to you when you had to start doing that kind of figuring out um you know in these long distance running events as opposed to when you were boating or skateboarding or doing these other activities and sports, were you like, wow, this is a whole new thing I've never kind of experienced before? Or did it actually feel more familiar? Yeah, I think that my answer to that is is both. I think it felt both familiar and completely foreign. Yeah. Like the familiar aspects were, you know, you had to put hard work into it, especially if we look at like skateboarding. Like if you try to learn a trick on a skateboard, you're going to have to put so much work into learning that trick and it's going to be hard and you're probably going to get hurt. Um, and learning how to run far had similar characteristics where you really just had to put the work in and able to do it, to be able to do it well. Um, but it felt so different because it, it was something that was lasting for long periods of time. It required figuring out how to do nutrition. You know, the skateboarder, you drink energy drinks yeah. and donuts and like, that's it. And when you're out running super far, I guess you can maybe eat the same things. So maybe that's <laughs> similar, <does>. not different. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it's, the, I, I found myself obsessed with learning running as a craft or running in the mountains in particular. And to this day, I find that still find that same curiosity and energy with it. Um, it's definitely not gotten to the point where I feel like I have it all figured out. And it's almost every time you run a hundred mile race, it feels like you're doing it for the first time. Where, where were you going to, to sort of like learn the craft of running in the mountains? Like, were you, were you picking up books or running with people more experienced? And Yeah, I ha I was really fortunate to have a couple of really great mentors. Um, Jared Campbell being one of those um, and the other Ryan McDermott. Uh, both of them at the time, Jared was at the time like winning hard rock and one of the best ultra runners um, in the world. And he kind of took me under his wing. And that's why I say running around with the wrong friends is mm. these guys who were so good at this. They're like, oh yeah, that's not that hard. Just come do it with us. And um, they were just this incredible resource early on to help me and still are to this day um, to help me explore the craft itself. Um, books, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really aware of much of books at that time. I think that's been a more recent development in the sport of like kind of how to books. Um, though I did make an attempt at reading like Noakes's lore of running book and things like that. I just, um, did never make it through any of those. <laughs> it's enormous. It's like the Warren piece. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. It's gigantic. The Warren, and the it's, Warren piece it's of not like a running. light read. Like, <laughs> huh. yeah. Yeah, Jared Campbell, that's a a friend to set yourself up with who that guy like can like he finishes uh like the Barkley marathons and he looks like he just got out of the shower. You know, he's like, Yeah, oh, yeah. That was great. Yeah. It's yeah, like, he's he's a diff I think he might be an alien, actually. Um <laughs> he he does things that I just can't wrap my head around. Um and, and he's a great 
mentor and friend and adventure partner. And, um, really cool to have that as, as some, that resource for sure. And he, he just recently, you are sort of coached you a little bit in you doing the, the whirl, right? Yeah. In the August. Yeah, it was. Yep. That, uh, do you want to explain what that is and <laughs> uh, well, how ridiculous it is? And <laughs> I mean, how many people do you think have actually ever finished that? 52. 52. Wow. Okay. I love it. He knows exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, unless there's been a couple more in the last two weeks, but that's where it was. Um, shortly after I did it, it was about 52. Um, so the whirl, uh, short for the Wasatch ultimate Ridge link up, uh, is a creation of Jared Campbell's, um, just outside of Salt Lake City. And basically it's a route that traces the skyline of Little Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, you start in town, a place called Ferguson, climb 6,000 feet to the top of the first peak, and then you stay on the ridge line for this uh, 26 or seven mile ridge traverse and then descend down back to Salt Lake City. Um, so it's just a route. Uh, it took me a few years to uh, feel comfortable doing it because it's in a weird space for me. It's kind of in between rock climbing and trail running. Um, a rock climber certainly wouldn't claim it as a sweet route uh, and trail runners that just run trails have no business up there because <laughs> um, there's a lot of exposure and technical scrambling. Um, so it took me some time working with Jared and other friends to get comfortable with the exposure and how to do the moves. And in August, I set out to set a fastest time on it. And and did and did, and did. yes <laughs> yes. <And did. laughs> uh, can we talk about the exposure for a second? Yeah, because I believe about five minutes ago you were talking about turning to running to maybe reduce some of your risk in the mountains. How how heavy are we talking about? Like one wrong move and it's curtains, or you're likely maybe not curtains, but likely to. Um, not be in the best shape coming off a fall? Oh, there's sections that's definitely it's curtains, you know, um, fifth class, you know, climbing. Um, and then there's lots of sections that it, it would just, it would really suck. Yeah. <laughs> like you'd feel pretty bad about how things went if you fell. <laughs> uh, and for me, like that fear of exposure, like I grew up in the mountains, like my dad rock climbed and I did, you know, some easy mountaineering and things like that. But I had a rock climbing accident when I was about 18 years old where I fell lead climbing and fractured my skull, spent a week in the ICU and a couple weeks in the hospital and never really got fully back on the, back in the saddle. Um, anytime that I get on the sharp end, even now I still have a hard time managing fear or, or working with fear or embracing fear or whatever strategy you use. And so for me, this route was a really big achievement outside of the, the time that I was able to do it in because I was able to stand with my fear and move through it and, and be able to move through that terrain quickly without being paralyzed uh, because of past events. Really cool for me. Hmm. So did you sort of like go and work on some of the, the harder sections or the more exposed sections like from not without doing the whole route first and then, and then go back and try the, the fastest your, your attempt at it and be like, okay, I've done this before. I've been here. I know what the moves are. Yes. What was yes that? That's okay. exactly what I did. Yeah. yeah. A, a year ago, typical for me, I got a phone call out of the blue from Jared last summer and he's like, Hey, I just moved into this new house and I want to go for a run. Do you want to come down for the weekend? And if anyone gets a phone call from Jared with that invitation, take warning. Um, <laughs> Because going for a run isn't going to be like going out to the neighborhood turkey trot. Um, so we, we ran from his house in Park City to Sundance, um, which is on the other side of the central Wasatch. Um, and part of that was doing a section of the whirl. Um, and so, so I got some exposure to it there. And then this summer I went back for three weekends in a row and did uh, two to three days at a time up working the route with Jared and other friends. So I essentially had covered every part of it uh, and some parts two or three times until I felt comfortable with it. So to that question of when you said, you know, you did this and you were particularly 
maybe proud of it because you were overcoming certain fears, but what got you to do it at all? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think it goes back to this curiosity that I have of exploring limits and I, I like to make myself uncomfortable and see how far I can push things. Um, and, and going, you know, taking risk in the mountains when I went to running to lessen risk may seem like a contradiction, but it comes with development of skill set. I think the risk is somewhat less as you learn how to move through those types of terrain. So yes, it could be riskier than running, uh, say the, the Leadville or, or a race that's just all on trail or, or a route that's all on trail. Um, but I, I don't find that as exciting unless I'm exploring those kind of limits around that. Yeah. Cause so, I mean, you, I guess for those, for people who don't know you, you do have a, a family and three, three daughters, right? I have two daughters and a little boy. Two daughters and a little boy. Sorry. Yeah. You know what? I actually looked on your website this morning. I was like, I wonder how, how much Luke updates this. Cause I think you only have I two don't. kids on your bio. <laughs> <laughs> I need I'm to like, fix that. Sure a third. <laughs> yeah. And he's almost five. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean, I don't know if people, do people even look at that stuff anymore? Are they just, like, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. You know? I don't know. It's just holding yeah. space out there. That's all it's doing. You maybe should so, update yeah. it though, Justin, you don't want him to ever come across that page and be like, daddy doesn't like, love me. <laughs> uh, with a family, this is a, this is one of the things I find your, your full-time PA. Yep. Um, married three kids you are an ultra runner who you are doing these big things and you're a race director which i think we should get into later and kind of talk about that as a form of uh self-flagellation as well Uh, oh boy or whatever but yeah but i've always i think i think your wife tanae is probably a saint um in helping you make all this happen or is that I mean, what oh, are, completely what is that, accurate. Yes. what is that like for you guys? Is she kind of just like, yeah, this is your thing. I'm, you know, how does that, how do you guys make that work? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would say sometimes we don't, like sometimes it doesn't work very well. Um, and, and interestingly, we had been married for four years before I started running. Um, so when we met, I wasn't this person. Um, and so I think part of the way or the reason that it's worked is it's grown with us um, as our relationship has changed and developed over the last now 17 years. Um, we, um, she's just been so incredibly supportive of me always. And I think part of it may have been out of relief that she saw that I was pushing some limits, uh, particularly with kayaking um, that were pretty uncomfortable to her. Um, and, and running was a a relief in some senses. And then it's become part of who we are. I mean, my kids have grown up at, you know, being crew at races or supporting me at these events. And, um, so yeah, and, and trying to make it all work. I think it's a, a farce of the modern time to think that relationships aren't messy. Um, and, and we've had our ups and downs with it, but um, she's been incredibly supportive of, of letting me follow this passion for all this time and continues to be to this day. Yeah, because it seems like it's a thing that takes up a large chunk or, or like it's probably how a lot of people know you, but it's a yeah. thing you could also just stop and be like, oh yeah, I'm just a guy with a full-time job who has three kids and a marriage. And like, that seems like enough to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you look back over training logs for the last eight to 10 years, it's 20 hours a week about that. I've been spending running <laughs> on, on top of, you know, I, I spend, you know, pretty much full-time hours at, at the medical clinic that I work at, uh, and then balance out all the other parts of being a professional athlete kind of in the margins and sometimes, or most of the time manage to find at least some time for the family and, and for our relationship. So, um, not a not a lot of hours left in the day when it all balances out. Yeah, how much do you sleep every night? Average. Uh, average is about four and a half to five hours. Just kind of ah, what works out. That explains that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I certainly uh, envy folks who get more. 
Um, and, and you made a really powerful point back there. At any point, I could just say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing that. Um, but I find a lot of fulfillment with that. It's what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning. So I don't know what life would be like without it. Or if I had that much sleep, I don't know what I'd feel like. <laughs> I, th- I think of Forrest Gump stopping his run where he just goes, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm going to go home now. Yeah. In Monument Valley. That may happen someday. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Luke, how, how do you feel day in and day out? I mean, that that is not much sleep. And we certainly seem to be hearing about more and more studies that, uh, you know, talk about the significance of uh, more time spent sleeping and all that. So to be a professional long distance runner who's averaging four and a half to five hours a night, that in and of itself seems surprising. Yeah. You know, I've always kind of been that way though. Like growing up, I was, I was kind of a night owl and, you know, the family go to bed and I'd hide under the blanket and read a book or, um, I, I never have necessarily required getting that much sleep. Um, so it's just kind of, the way that my body works, I guess. Maybe I'm fortunate or maybe I'm cursed but, with but that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing then you don't wake up every morning feeling exhausted. You you wake up and you feel pretty good and you're like, well, I'm ready to go. I mean, it certainly ebbs and flows, but but yeah, for the most part, the alarm clock goes off and it's time to go. You know, it's um, uh, there are certain days where a little extra caffeine is necessary to make it through you know, the day at work or things like that. And um but not always. I'd be interested in backing up for a second. You know, you've talked a bit about your time and experience as a kayaker and a bit as a climber. Were you looking to sort of be a professional athlete in some of these areas or were these just pastimes and hobbies? I'm, I'm not, I'm guessing that's not the last part was not true. No, I don't tend to do things at that level very well. Um, I tend to go all in. So yeah, um, I had about seven years as a semi-professional snowboarder where I had some sponsorships and um, traveled around doing events with the couple of snowboard companies. Um, and kayaking was definitely like, I was really interested in trying to get first descents um, or paddling difficult, you know, class five type whitewater. Wow. Um, both in, in the States and I did a handful of rivers down in South America and Central America. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I was kind of all in for, for a lot of years. Did you think of yourself kind of first and foremost as a snowboarder or? That's what I identified as. Yeah. I identified myself. If someone was like, Hey, what do you do? I was like, I, I snowboard, you know? And, um, that was kind of like the thing. And then I, you know, I skateboarded a lot in the summers and kayaking was something that was kind of a a constant in my life. One of my best friends early on, his family were river rats and they took me kayaking, uh, for the first time down the middle fork of the salmon when I was 14 years old. And, uh, so boating became a really, um, significant part of my life uh, through them. Uh, and we have this, where I grew up in this small town in Idaho, there was an irrigation canal that had this really awesome play wave in it. So you could go paddle out and surf and do tricks. And, uh, I spent, hours in, in that irrigation canal <laughs> paddling and getting better at being a kayaker and, uh, and then that evolved into running big rivers and challenging creeks things like that it's just always so funny when you know poor brendan he's we we've talked a lot and by we i guess it's been i have just talked a lot about kind of identity and how we all have our the ways that we kind of see ourselves and identify ourselves. And that can be pretty different from sometimes how the rest of the world does. So, right, Luke, you and I are just meeting for the first time here. And I'm like, yeah, Luke Nelson, the runner. And it's like, well, turns out there's this whole other <laughs> life and series of interests and accomplishments and the rest. And I always find it wonderful to be able to kind of explode these narrowly defined, you know, senses of who a person is. So, yeah. Well, I love people are complex and it's cool to learn more about what they do beyond their uh, Instagram feed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was just thinking about how funny it would be if you went to Luke's Instagram and it was all just like pottery. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm super into 
<laughs> throwing this set of dishes for my, you know, and you're like, whoa. Oh, that uh, is a brilliant idea. Yeah. Maybe I just need to abandon my current feed tactics and see if I can get a few more followers via pottery. Yeah, something, <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. Maybe pottery is pretty pretty intensive as far as going and actually making it. So maybe, I don't know, watercolor Com- Complex or paper airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hashtag origami. It's hot. Hot right yeah, now. Yeah, buddy. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, Luke, uh, I guess it seems like early on in your career you went and you did a, a lot of races and did really well at them. And do you feel like you're transitioning more out of running a set race course and trying to get, you know, trying to do as well as you can, maybe beat everybody else in it to doing things that you just want to go out and explore. And is that sort of a transition that's happening or are you just kind of, are you dabbling in that as well as doing a little bit of racing still? I, I think definitely there's a trend away from racing. Um, and the motivations behind that is I've gotten a lot more interested in, in exploring, um, kind of the margins of what I can do. And I've felt that there's been some limitations with racing and I'm a lot less interested in seeing how I stack up compared to someone else. Like, um, with running, it inherently is celebrated through racing and determining, you know, who's faster. And as a professional athlete, um, there's a lot of pressure on that. Um, I've been a lot more inspired the last few years, and I think this will continue moving forward, um, less by racing and more either by particular events because of their difficulty or duration um, or routes or lines in the mountains that have either yet to be drawn um, or that are particularly inspiring to me, like like the Whirl or, or those types of things. So like events like the Tour de Jeans, where it's like very, yeah. like maybe you might not finish because yeah, it's so hard yeah. or, okay that was the coolest thing about that particular event Tordesjans is a race in Italy and it was the first time in a long time that I signed up for an event that I wasn't sure that I could finish it um, and that was really exciting to me uh, to see if I could you know find find a new edge of of what was possible yeah well, I think I ran into you before the race and you said it was I think you call it the PhD of ultra running or a PhD of ultra PhD. running. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you compare it to other races, even hard rock, you know, hard rock 100, one of the most difficult hundred mile races, um, because of its, uh, elevation gain, um, and altitude, but the elevation gain being 36,000, um, feet of ascent, the Tour de Giants, the year that I did it was 231 miles long and had just under a hundred thousand feet of ascent and descent. Um, I mean, it's a totally different level. It's a different game. It's a different, almost different sport <laughs> at that point. Um, and it was, it was a, an extremely fulfilling, uh, challenge to set out on. Yeah. I, I think I was following you via Instagram and tonight was posting, I think maybe some stories or videos of you. And yeah. I thought, yeah. I just, I just remember thinking, wow, he doesn't, he doesn't look too good. He looks super like, holy shit. I mean, it was, I mean, I was you like, like delirium and, um, and didn't you, did you sleep like an hour, three hour times, maybe an hour and a no, half? No, an total. hour and a half total. Yeah. Okay. In, in three and a half days, wow. uh, 87 hours of travel on my feet and managed an hour and a half of sleep. And yes, I got fully into hallucinations and, um, there's sections of the race that I don't remember anything about. I just blacked out. Maybe I was sleeping and moving or I don't know. Um, yeah. So, and, and Tanae was doing this incredible job of documenting just this carnage fest <laughs> of my degrade over the period of time. Um, and then eventual finish. So yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> where, where are you? Uh, yeah. Where are you going? Like, in those I mean that's hard for a very long time like that's hard for I don't know I don't even like to go a night without sleep it seems to be like just it, it like triples the misery I feel like <laughs> and I had this the last really long race I did I thought I kept thinking of my friend Sean who told me 
he had done two hundreds and the second one was Leadville. And I just kept hearing his voice going, yeah, I don't know if I ever need to run a hundred miles again. I kept thinking that I was like, (laughs) yeah, this part isn't really very fun. You know, like, am I growing as a person? Am I, you know, like, what am I getting out of this? But you just keep moving for, for some reason, you know, like what is, what's pushing you? I mean, I, sometimes I think like, well, you know, my wife or my friends are out here and I, I like they they stayed up a lot of the night and probably only slept like a couple hours. I can't really just be like, hey, guys, I got tired. So I quit at mile 70 or whatever. You know, I, I don't want to let them down and have them come out here for nothing and or, or you know, whatever motivation you find. So like what what keeps you going? Um, that's a really good question. Um, and maybe the most interesting thing about ultra running, right? it's all voluntary. Like there's no one that's forcing you, no gun to your head that says, Hey, keep moving. Um, and when you were saying that it made me think of a particular moment a couple of years ago with Jared, ironically, where it became a very profound lesson to me. Um, it was during, uh, a a jaunt in the Sawatch range there in Colorado, uh, where Jared and I were doing Nolan's. And it was the first time that I had gone over 30 hours with, without sleeping. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to run hundred milers pretty fast and never been awake for that long. And, and about 36 hours in, I told Jared that I wanted to quit. And, and he's like, he just kind of acknowledged my comment, but didn't say anything beyond that. And we had, I don't know, seven or eight miles before we had a spot that we could act, that I could actually quit. I couldn't just like lay down on the rocks where I was at. And, uh, you know, maybe half an hour or 40 minutes went by and he just turned and looked at me at one point and he said, you know, this is what you signed up for. Hmm. And then he trotted off ahead of me and I was like, ah, you jerk. Yeah. Like, um, but he was right. And when I look at what motivates me to do this, it's, it's the challenge. And challenge is supposed to be hard. And when it gets hard, that's when I actually find this kind of maybe odd pleasure in the discomfort. And I think, yeah, like you signed up to see if you could do this. Let's see if we can. And let's see how uncomfortable it gets. Or, you know, does it get to the point where, uh, you know, you're, you're just a zombie. And, and, and then when you look back at it, whatever that outcome for me, when, when I, when I successfully complete something like that, I was like, wow, like I felt like I could probably do that. And sure enough, I could. And then it opens the door to like, okay, well, what what's else? next? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's curiosity, I guess, is how I would boil it down to as a curiosity of like, where is the limit of human potential for me, for what is Luke Nelson's human potential? Uh, and, and that curiosity just keeps me cooking right along. Hearing you talk about this, Luke, like it's funny on the one hand, when you describe it as like, what is the limit of human potential? That sounds like a very elevated, um, optimistic uh, way to describe putting yourself through some extremely intense discomfort. I think there's a, there's a flip side or a different way we could kind of describe this where there's a, I mean, I think Brendan already said like, talking about being a race director, like a self-flagellation component. (laughs) And I I actually think that's really interesting, right? Like on the one hand, we sometimes talk about, look, you know, modern life uh, is pretty soft and comfortable in general. And so do you get what I mean? Like on the one hand, there's the like human potential, let's push the limits higher of what humans are capable of. A different, maybe somewhat darker or somewhat more elemental way to describe this is, I don't want to be soft. You know, how hard can we push the engine? And right, this is a kind of stereotypical thing when it comes to like ultra runners. Like we've talked about this. Um, It can kind of, some of the motivation can come from a pretty dark place. And is it sometimes dark? Is it always optimistic? Is it a mix? Does it depend on the race or the day? Hmm. Um, I certainly this, this is going to sound kind of weird to say it this way, but I certainly feel comfortable when it gets dark. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and, and the, that kind of concept of maybe self-flagellation is a little bit darker than what I would feel like it is. But, um, 
I, I really enjoy uh, being uncomfortable or hurting a little bit. Um, and, and, and I guess I don't know why. It'd be super interesting to sit down with some psychologists and get to the <laughs> roots of that. Um, but, but I enjoy going out and doing something that, that just, it may seem just overwhelmingly difficult. And then juxtaposing that with, you know, the day-to-day -day life working as a, a medical professional and talking with people. I work in a spine clinic, so I talk with people about pain all the time. And I think it helps me understand other people's pain a little bit. Um, not that I have illnesses, but maybe this running thing <laughs> causes, <laughs> maybe it is an illness, but, but I can understand pain and discomfort because of what I do. And maybe, and maybe there's some, some connection there that I'm seeking for, but haven't really acknowledged prior, uh, trying to be more empathetic to people who, who suffer. Yeah. How did, how does it, uh, I guess what you've learned in the past several years of running and doing these things that are really outside anyone's comfort zone, what, it, what are the things that have carried over in that same vein into your daily life? Like, are you, are you more apt to finish yard work, even though it's hard and <laughs> meaningless? Oh, and, oh no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> My grass is definitely not mowed very often. <laughs> um, I think that what I, one of the biggest lessons that I have taken from it and I try to um, share with patients or, or other people around me is, is we often sell ourselves short. Um, and, and we, we create these boundaries for ourselves that, that we ourselves become the limitation. Um, and, and, you know, if I relate that to the patients that I work with, they often will come in and say, I'm in pain. I can't do X, Y, or Z. And they, they can, it might not be comfortable or it might not be easy, but they often are setting up these barriers. And um, sometimes in the right circumstances, I can, you know, talk with people about the things that I've done and help them understand that these boundaries are things that they're creating for themselves. Um, and I, I think maybe that's probably the biggest lesson is, is we sell ourselves short all too often. Luke, is, is what you're communicating, and I'm sure you do this, would be doing this very sort of graciously, but I don't hear you saying like, you're trying to get them to do rehab to make the pain go away. You are in, in at least in this context of what you just said, you're, you're trying to get them to live with the pain and not be immobilized by it. Is that fair? Yes, it's very fair. And I, I you know, this is nuanced, right? Because there are people who have, you know, illnesses or pathologies that, that, pushing through is not the appropriate treatment, right? Um, but there are others who would embrace pain as the, the excuse or the limiting factor to not live life. And their pain, though they feel it and I do not, um, often can be something overcome or embraced even. Um, and if they were to embrace that and do more with activity or their life, they would have a life that's more fulfilled instead of locking themselves into a box and saying, I can't because of pain or I can't because of discomfort. There's a really good, uh, a book called endure, um, by, ah, boy, what is the Alex author? He's, Hutchison. Yeah, Alex. Yes. Yeah. It's awesome about the, one of the studies he talks about is do people who do long distance running or endurance sports have a higher pain tolerance uh, innately, or do they develop a higher pain tolerance because of the sports they do, um, because of the, the time they, they spend in pain? Um, and I, I think about it as like the only way to acclimate yourself to cold temperatures uh, that's scientifically proven is to spend time in cold temperatures as opposed to any other physiological thing. And I think about, I think it's the same way about some of the stuff we do like, Oh yeah, that hurts. Okay. Well, it doesn't hurt as bad as the thing I will do in two weeks. This really hard thing. Um, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> and, and I think it comes more to often we want to push those things away from us. We want to hide pain in the basement or we want to, you know, push it aside where instead maybe it's better to embrace it and, and get comfortable with what it is 
like. Um, and that happens with a lot of emotions. Uh, I, I give credit where credit's due. I read a book um, by Kristen Ulmer, a famous free skier yeah. from the late 90s about fear. Fascinating book and her approach kind of using Zen philosophy to manage fear. This is part of my prep for the world, actually, was reading that. <laughs> um, but, but she talks about this concept of, of we often create our own problems by hiding our emotions away or burying them in the basement. And um, it was really enlightening to read that and like, be like, well, yeah, you know what? I can, I can embrace pain or I can embrace fear. And by doing that, learn an awful lot about myself and, and how I respond to things. By the way, Luke, we, I had a terrific conversation with Kristen uh, over on our Blister podcast. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, really, really fun. And we're, we're overdue for kind of a round two on that conversation. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a really fun one and uh, very uh, enlightening one for sure. Um, I'm kind of curious if you put your physician's assistant hat on for a second. You know, we're talking about staring down this pain or like, you know, embracing it, but continuing on, does the physician side of you ever wonder or worry about taxing the system this hard, you know, and potential consequences or long-term consequences of doing that? Uh, short answer. Yes, for sure. I mean, there's, there's always the question, um, but it's never stopped me. Um, and, and often that question arises in the time where you're in the heat of the moment. You know, uh, I, I think back of, of running the Bear 100 a couple of years ago in a time when I was unprepared for it. And I, all I was doing near the, for the last 40 miles was hoping for some uh, intervention from on high that I would hurt, like break my ankle or something so I didn't have to carry on. Um, <laughs> And, and I was like, man, I'm definitely doing something permanent to myself right now. But um, the, the reality is, is looking at it from a medical perspective, um, for the most part, none of the things we're doing, even at the extreme levels, are causing significant medical problems. You know, the whole picture could if you're not eating right or you're um, imbalanced along those ways. And there's the risk of overuse injuries for sure. Um, and, and as a runner anyone who runs a lot is going to get this from non-runners. But the question is, well, doesn't that ruin your knees? Um, and the scientific literature currently says that that's not the case, um, that it's just not a reality that you're going to do that. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think part of the, the approach to the craft that I take is, is really scientific as well. I, I do a uh, pretty diligent monitoring of, uh, like blood work and things like that to keep an eye on how I'm doing. But um, I don't feel like it's going to hurt me long-term. I think I'm going to be better off for it, both physically and especially mentally. Yeah, that must be, that must be weird self-diagnosing uh, as you, <laughs> you because I'm kind of like, oh, I have no idea what's wrong. You know, I mean, I didn't yeah. go to school for this. So <laughs> It can get pretty weird. Like you could also run down like these like, like obscure pathways of like, well, is this, this weird illness developing or did I just break <laughs> this tendon or like, um, yeah, it's entertaining. At least it gives your mind something to think about while you're doing it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, shifting uh, topics fairly dramatically. Luke, we had a chance to talk to Claire Gallagher right after Western States, which was just after this trip to Alaska. And yeah. um, I would love to hear you just talk a little bit about your time there, that trip. Well, let me first say that Claire Gallagher is a boss. Like she is yeah. one of the most incredible humans um, that I've had the privilege to spend time with. And her Western States win after our expedition to Alaska is nothing short of miraculous. <laughs> um, it was the worst thing you could do to prepare <laughs> to run Western States. <laughs> I mean, if, if we look at that trip, uh, for those who maybe don't know a little bit about what we did, um, Claire, Tommy Caldwell, uh, famous rock climber, 
and Austin Sidak, who's an incredible photographer, and I went up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, it was Tommy's trip. It was his creation. And the goal was to experience the refuge, uh, climb a peak, and um, bring back some imagery so that we could help uh, talk about the issues facing the refuge, uh, particularly around extraction. And we spent nine days, we flew in on a bush plane, got dropped off on a place on a map that we had just picked. We had no real good information about what we were doing and the bush plane flew off. Um, <laughs> there we were, uh, deep, deep, deep in Alaska. Um, we had big, heavy packs. Our packs were between 45 and 50 pounds. And for scrawny ultra runners like Claire and I, um, that's pretty damn heavy. Um, and we carried these packs uh, about 35 or 40 miles up and over the second tallest peak in the Brooks Range, um, over glaciers, over endless scree fields, um, through some technical alpine climbing, some of the most technical climbing that I've ever been involved with, which is a lot easier when you have a rope gun like Tommy. Um, <laughs> You know, the best climber in the world right. tells us beforehand, yeah, it's not going to be a big deal. It's not going to be that hard. Um, <laughs> sandbag. Sandbag, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then we got into pack rafts and we pack rafted out uh, 50 miles uh, of more or less continuous class two and class three whitewater. Um, if you're putting together your training plan for Western states, none of those things should be on it. Um, <laughs> Yet, yet Claire managed to come off of that trip and, and win. Um, the goal of that trip, though, um, was to experience the, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. And um, the group of people that went up there, uh, Tommy, Claire, Austin, and I, have all experienced wilderness all over the world. And for every one of us, we felt that that was a different kind of wild. It was wilder than we had ever been uh, around there, the, an experience that both Tommy and I have shared a couple of times, uh, and, and Claire may have talked about it as well. Um, uh, maybe our sixth or seventh day, we midday we stopped to have lunch, and we kind of crawled behind this dirt embankment because it was windy, and we're you know joking around eating lunch. And Tommy looks up, looks at Austin, and says, "Austin, there's a wolf behind you." And Austin goes pale and turns, and there's literally a wolf six feet behind Austin blood in its fur from having a recent caribou kill. Um, and you know, we all kind of casually stand up hoping it's going to run off and it stands there unafraid and unaggressive because of its lack of experience with humans. Hmm. Um, and, and to have an experience like that and recognize that we're the foreigners and that place is so unadulterated by human society um, drove home the need for protecting places like that. Um, and then, you know, since uh, the, the three of us have done a lot of work writing and we've been out to, to D.C. lobbying, trying to keep um, oil extraction from being opened in the heart of the refuge. Um, and it's not particularly looking optimistic right now, but um, we're going to keep fighting for it for sure. Had you spent much time with... Tommy and or Claire before that trip? Not tons with either one. I've had some interactions with Tommy. We're both Patagonia athletes. And so we've, you know, we've spent a little bit of time at, at events with Patagonia, but not an extended period of time. Um, Claire and I had spent more for sure um, running together a little bit. Uh, she came and did the race that I put on um, this year. So we spent a bit of time there. Um, but to have basically uninterrupted human interaction for nine days and it never got dark. So we basically were awake most of it. <laughs> and you, you would have been anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, to gain that human connection with, with these now dear friends um, in that, in that way, I mean, it, it's a lot like climbers would talk about on, on sharing a rope with a person. When you have that kind of experience, you become friends on a different level. Um, and much faster than you would if you just went out to coffee together. Um, yeah. So, and, and uh, for everyone who's curious, um, they, they, there's that saying that you should never meet your heroes because you might be disappointed. 
neither Tommy or Claire will disappoint you. <laughs> so it's okay for them to be your heroes and to meet them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to just want to hear about your experience, you know, organizing or starting and organizing an ultra marathon in your hometown. Cause I, it started as a, did it start as a 50 mile race? And then it uh, did. Yeah. Including eight and a hundred. And like, it just seems, I feel like that's a labor of love and in a huge, huge sense, but just like, I mean, I feel like where were you at where you thought I have time for this or what, what was the motivation <laughs> to, to start it? You know, I, I don't know that I've actually ever made that statement of I have time for this. <laughs> it doesn't even, it doesn't even question like, of course I have time for it. Um, <laughs> the, so the race actually started, it was Jared Campbell that started the race, Jared Campbell and Ryan McDermott, my two mentors. Um, they started the Pocatello 50. Um, it was 11 years ago now. Um, and when they started the race, they started, Ryan was living here, Jared in Salt Lake, and they started it because they felt like there was uh, a beautiful place, some great trails and a community that would benefit from a trail race. Um, I raced the event the first year. Well, I raced it the first three years, but the second and third year I kind of mentored with them. And the fourth year I took the event over. Um, so I've been the race director for, um, six or seven years now. And as the race evolved, it was a 50 mile race and they had a relay where people could do three person teams to run 50 miles. That's a logistical nightmare. So we got rid of the relay. We added a shorter distance. Then we actually measured the course and it was 56 miles. So we changed it to hundred K. Um, and then we found out that Americans can't do the metric system and hundred K <laughs> wasn't that popular. Uh, and so two years ago we created the hundred mile race. Uh, so we have a hundred mile race, a 50 mile race, and then a 21 mile race. And we hold it all on the same weekend, first weekend of June. Um, we have those three distances, uh, because I think the hundred mile race is really, uh, what people are after exploring in the running world. 50 mile is a good stepping stone, a good learning tool. And the 21 mile race is for my local runners to get a chance to experience what trail running is. Um, it is absolutely a labor of love. Um, if anybody thinks they're going to be rich becoming a race director, that is definitely not the case. Um, and, and at this point, uh, my number one goals with the event is to create a really cool experience for people to come see what my backyard is like. And I use it as an experiment um, in using a trail running event to encourage and engage trail runners in environmental activism. Um, it's kind of my laboratory <laughs> to keep people fired up about being activists. Yeah. And that's like beginning of June. Yeah. First weekend of June every year. Yeah. First weekend of June. So you are just, um, getting crushed for probably the last two weeks of May then. Yeah. With logistics yeah, I mean, and other things. From a logistics standpoint, there's myself as the race director, and then I have uh, a couple of really key volunteers. I've got um, two dear friends that are both, from, fortunately for me, are retired. Uh, one of them's Dan, and he's in charge of all my course marking. Uh, and then Dwight is in charge of all my aid stations. Um, and Tanae, uh, my partner, is in charge of the start and finish line. Um, and between the four of us, uh, and then a host of volunteers on the race weekend, but we pull off this, uh, logistically nightmarish task, um, uh, keeping a hundred miles of trail. Cause we do a lot of the trail clearing and trail maintenance. The forest service around here has a limited budget. And so, uh, we volunteer, uh, to clear a hundred miles of trail every spring and make sure the course is ready. Uh, we did a little over 200 hours of trail work, uh, this year. Um, and, uh, that's just the trail portion, not including all the logistics of like getting t-shirts and buying food for aid stations and, uh, dealing with registration and, um, a million questions from runners that I love to answer. Um, I have gotten in trouble a couple of times for being a little, um, terse in answering emails <laughs> and I recommend people looking at the website <laughs> for the answer they're looking for. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's 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 way easier to run a hundred miles than it is to put on a hundred mile race. That's for damn sure. 
so where do you get the the satisfaction? Are you like watching the last ten people finish the hundred mile rate? Like, what is what's the what's the best um, repayment you get for that? Um, so when I when I took over race directing, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish is I wanted to congratulate every finisher. Um, and for the last two years, I've successfully been able to do that, um, to greet every finisher as they come across the finish line. Um, and you couldn't pay me enough to take that job away. Um, to see people um, get back after going on this incredible journey, um, it's life-changing for people. And to see that in their eyes at the finish line is uh, more payment than I'll ever need. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer because it looks it looks really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this year I managed to uh, to pull thirty six hour shift um, without sleeping. Um, uh, the sleep thing keeps coming back. Yeah. But I I started the hundred mile race. They they start at noon on Friday. Registration starts at eight a.m. So I was setting up the uh, check in area at six a.m. on Friday morning, and I was able to go to sleep after our last runner finished at about 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, we do a 36-hour cutoff, um, but because of conditions this year, we we extended that because the runners, the 100-mile runners had to do about seven miles of snow running, terrible sloppy snow running. <laughs> um, so we, we took the cutoffs uh, off for the most part and let people finish whenever they did. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Luke, I often like to ask this pretty annoying question of um, what's the best question that we haven't asked you yet? That's the first time I've been asked that question. Um, Are you annoyed? By <laughs> Brendan it? is. is no, I'm not. I'm actually not annoyed by it, but I don't know how to answer. I know. It's really um, hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I would feel remorse if we didn't take a minute to talk about um, being uh, an activist for the environment. Um, you know, I, I do all of these other things, um, but something that I've become very passionate about over the last several years is um, is trying to protect these wild places that, um, as trail runners, we hold so dear. Um, you know, if you if you think about all of the time, I mean, I, I, I don't know a ton about the audience that all listens to Blister, but I'm certain that there's a number of trail runners that listen to this. Um, and there's there's probably a handful of other people who spend outside time in the mountains. Um, and I, I, I like to make the connection between the joy and the fulfillment that we get when we're in those places. And that can be on a lot of different levels. Um, but they, they tend to be special experiences. Um, this connection that we make with the world around us, wild places. Um, and often there's a, a gap between how deep that connection is and what we do to stand up for those places when they're put at risk. Mostly because a lot of times that place at risk is not the one that's in our immediate backyard. It's not our daily trail run that's at risk, or it's not the view that you see from your back porch. Um, but currently, especially in the United States, these, these public lands that, that really define us as a nation are at risk. There's a lot of people who want their hands on them as much as we want to be able to play in them. And I, I, would, uh, I would challenge our, our trail running family, if you will, to, to put a little bit of the energy that they normally would put into just being out and enjoying it to help and protect those places. Brendan, last question. Yeah. Yeah. And mine, this is, has nothing to do with what you just said. So it's total, total non sequitur. Um, yeah, I guess I'm curious what you would say is, um, something that I think about running, uh, irrational distances. And I think nowadays anything is, you know, we could argue that running three miles is pretty irrational unless you're right. You know, you're three miles from a bus stop and you're <laughs> like going to miss the bus to work or whatever. But what do you think people who don't do that, who don't run or, um, 
are not currently doing it, what do you think that they don't know about it that that you would like to communicate that that's a that's a like a positive thing that they may or may not be missing, I guess? I think the number one thing that they're missing out on is um, getting to feel a little bit wild. And, and what I mean by that is our lives are so manicured. Um, you know, you, you wake up in your nice warm house and you take your nice warm shower and then you drive in your nice warm car to your nice warm cubicle or your nice cool cubicle if it's in the summer. Um, and everything is so um, managed uh, and, and you miss out if that's all you do on letting your hair get messed up in the wind and, uh, feeling some, some dirt in your shoes or rubbing a weird blister. And, uh, you know, you, you miss out on being the wild people that we once were. Luke Nelson really appreciated this conversation. Thanks for talking with us today and, and making the time when, uh, when time is at a premium, we know. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right, guys. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Luke and Brendan for the conversation. And if you are enjoying these Off the Couch episodes, we hope that you will tell your friends about the show and leave us a nice rating in iTunes. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.